welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Letter H. Aw, thanks Letter H. You're my favorite letter. Let's start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Stillwater. Catch Stillwater on the No More Airplanes tour and hear the smash hit Fever Dog. It's all happening with Stillwater. <laughs> Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a show where we like to break apart a movie and see what it's made of. Maybe some filmmaking tricks and tips, things that you know a filmmaker would enjoy, but also kind of breaking it down so that if you have no idea what we're talking about, hopefully it'll give you a little more insight into the movie making uh, magic, the process. I think some people kind of enjoy that and like understanding how the, how the food is made the sausage so to speak yeah and then most of that will probably come from me because i'm less the less uh when i watch movies i'm I'm more about just like you know shutting down and letting it come to me in essence so i i have more of i feel like i have more of the everyday viewer kind of kind of yeah uh, inside i guess yeah and it's funny like every time because uh, this is going to sound so shitty, but I come in not really expecting anything from you. <laughs> <laughs> it does. That does sound shitty. You're right. But, <laughs> it sounds awful. But from, this, uh, from the perspective of like, you don't really come in with a singular aim. Like, mm. I know you're going to have thoughts and I want to hear those thoughts. But every time, like, I, I've already forgotten and I was going to bring it up. But even from the last episode, uh, we were talking about whatever it was, not The Departed. What, what did we even do last week? What year <laughs> Almost is Almost famous. Yes. And you made this great comment that was just like, I had been chewing on for several days after. And I just love, because it's all off the top of your head. Like you, right. you, you come in not prepared, but it also leaves you more open to just going wherever your thoughts take you. Whereas I'm over here one track minded and I'm like, What's your next point, Wes? Well, Is- because my, my I'm more of like overarching, mm. you know, kind of like this this section made me feel this way, and I and this uh, I didn't like it when this guy did that or whatever. And you're, but you're talking about very specific things, mm-hmm. like in this shot, the camera angle is this way because of X and Y. Like you have to have notes for that, you know, because if you if you have like five or six of those little things, like it, you have to run down. True. Um, so I, I get away with it a little bit. You do, but it's great because I really believe that you not having an agenda. <laughs> that's probably is, the more accurate way to is, put yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I was gonna say this is this is turning into a into a slam Todd. No, this is great. but because of that, I like, enjoy it. You are <laughs> you are so much. Uh, I don't know, free and open to just make observations off the cuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that ha- is, you have been known to change my mind too. In yeah, episodes, absolutely. For sure. No, yeah. it is. It's super informative that, yeah, there's been several times where I was like, damn, like still, I think my favorite is still whiplash actually. Oh. Um, which, really? where you made this great like observation about the way the character was reacting in, oh. in, in his establishment. And that's stuck with me really, really hard. Also because it was just one of our earlier episodes. Like yeah. I feel like everything from that era, <laughs> it was also, you know, circulating around music and stuff. So True. I'm really into that. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it, I always feel like I have something really to look forward to, even if I'm bored with like my own thoughts on yeah. any particular subject. I'm like, but same, I, same. I can't wait to hear what we, hey, we should be friends. Yeah. Let's hang out. Hey, sometime. Let's, let's start a podcast <laughs> about movies and talk about things <laughs> once a week. Why not? Let's, let's do that. We should. So today we're going to be covering Gladiator, yeah. the 2000 Best Picture winner, and we're going to be covering a lot of things, but first off, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, everything that's going to follow from this moment on is going to ruin it for you, uh, so make sure to pause this and go watch it and then come back and listen to what we have to say. Yeah, we're going to talk about things like cinematography telling a story through wardrobe, which I'm totally biting off of someone else's and I'll give them full credit. Uh, But we'll also touch on like visual effects and probably a lot more. There's some thematic things I couldn't quite nail down, but that'll be one of the points of open conversation for sure. So the synopsis of the film, again, you know, spoilers, but here you go. When a Roman general is betrayed and his family murdered by an emperor's corrupt son, he comes to Rome as a gladiator to seek revenge. I'm Ron Burgundy. (laughs) (laughs) Damn you, Wes. 
<laughs> Busted. Oh. Every time. I was really trying to distract you away from, but you were sharp. I was sharp. I added the, the question you mark did. at the end there for you. Come on, man. <laughs> Directed by Ridley Scott. Screenplay by David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson. Starring Russell Crowe as Maximus. Joaquin Phoenix as Commodus. Connie Nielsen as Lucilla. Oliver Reed as Proximo. Richard Harris as Marcus Aurelius. And Jimon... Jamon Jamon Hansu as Juba. We're good at that. Yeah. You sent for me, Caesar. Caesar. Tell me again, Maximus. Why are we here? For the glory of the Empire, sire. Oh yeah. Oh yes, I remember. Do you see that map, Maximus? That is the world which I created. For 25 years, I have conquered, spilt blood, expanded the empire. Since I became Caesar, I've known four years without war. Four years of peace in 20. And for what? I brought the sword. Nothing more. Caesar, your life, please. Please don't call me that. Come. Please. Come sit. Let us talk together now. Very simply, as men. Well, Maximus. Talk. I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light. Yet you have never been there. You have not seen what it has become. I am dying, Maximus. When a man sees his end, he wants to know there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? Really, yeah, I mean, God, that's I engaging. Even, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's so much there, and they're making this bigger commentary that I couldn't quite pin down. Maybe I just didn't take the proper time to uh, try, at least. But you have, right, this emperor who's turning over the reins, so to speak, well, or more literally, uh, to his empire. And he's giving over to his soldier over his own son, which I guess was a little bit more common at that era of Roman history, actually. I did like the briefest wiki research. And so I'm probably going to make an ass of myself here. But it sounded like it was less common to actually give a, a, an inherited you know, crown. And this was one of the few times that it was a non-adoptive son that you know, gained uh, the authority or became Caesar. And so in this film, right, he's, he's handing it over to a a soldier in hopes of regaining a Roman empire, a Republic for the Roman empire. But one of the things that struck me was why do you have to wait until like you're on your deathbed? If you were really all about that, like you could have done that, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. If well, you he, knew. he wasn't in the mindset five years ago. You think that's what it was? I, yeah. I think it was like he realized he's dying. And in that realization, then came to this the broader realization of the man the last 25 years what have i done what have i accomplished i mean he even says it in the in the bite he says you know you know what is four four years of peace in 20 you know yeah what is that what is the roman empire you know and i think they even speak to um joaquin phoenix when he's talking to lucilla i think later on she asks or he asks what it was something, something like what is the Republic or something, something like that, but they're in his chambers mm-hmm. or something. And it's, it's a, a very broad thing. So yeah, I think, I think it was just, he came to a realization. I think you're right. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're right. The way he was ruminating on like even the very fun, fundamental question of why are we here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like what, when they, when he asks, what is the Roman empire? I mean, that's, you think it's kind of a stupid question, but not really. I mean, it's it's the same thing as saying, you know, 
what is America or yeah. what is Europe or it, what is it? Really, it's an ideal th- that's confined to borders. That you know, that's really all it is. But it is it's an important question, but it's not a no brainer. You know, it's definitely yeah. has some weight to it. And but if you if you step back and you look at it with a broader picture, you think, oh, it's it's the people that make it up, right? Yeah. And and all this conquering that he's done is not. I mean, you you're not winning people. You know, you're winning land and you're expanding borders, but you're not, you know, they talk about how this whole movie is about how the people have the power, right? Mm-hmm. If the people like you in, in the Coliseum, you win. Obviously, throughout this whole movie, that's how, that's how uh, Russell Crowe ends up, Maximus ends up winning, is he wins the people. And what he wants to do, what the, Caesar wants to do is give that power back to the people now because he's the one that's been taking the power and he's now finally realizing, oh, I need to, you know, to make Rome strong, we have to give it to the people. We have to give it back. That's such an elegant, yeah. like, that's absolutely perfect because I, I have thoughts on here about the mob and whatnot, but uh, I hadn't tied it into the very beginning. And it, I think that is about the most holistic view of Rome. And you are absolutely right. I've, for, you know, that's what we know about system of government or government in itself, regardless of the system mm-hmm. is that the laws are a reflection of the culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. In any society. Definitely. And the reason they are there is because, and he's right. Maximus is right too. It is for the glory of the empire, but it's because that's what the people really want. Mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me is you have a soldier, a commander who conquers all enemies of the state and now he's entertaining the masses as a blood fighter. And it made me just ask the question of, is there a parallel? And in the sense that are wars, the same bloody entertainment and money scheme, you know, a good ruler fights for his country, a bad for his own glory. And in both cases, blood is going to be spilled, but maybe in, in, you know, fighting for your country, sometimes it's not always noble and sometimes it is more for personal glory and more for you know ego and entertaining your own people back home and certainly for the contracts like uh, there's so much money to be made in war mm-hmm. that i mean we can look around at our own world right now the people the places that are war zones are the, are the places without any strong sense of government and now it's just a little bit easier and you know, to take advantage of that, but less and less, there are fewer parts of the world where, you know, we can kind of accomplish that. And it made me just wonder, I guess, was Ridley Scott and his team uh, making some more profound statement or question pondering of using this time period to kind of reflect on, are we slipping into dictatorships, you know, with our executive branch being so able to, to commit to wars or, or and should we consider, you know, trying to get back to a little bit more of the roots of a republic? Um, and keep in mind, too, this was in 2000, so maybe written in like 99. And that at that era, we that was pre, you know, 9-11, pre-Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We, we were still dealing with a, an administration that was doing some pretty horrific things, uh, maybe not on the same scale as what we've done since, but... Uh, still largely horrific. So yeah, it was just all these questions that I didn't really have any elegant answer to, but I think it comes back to exactly what you said that at the end of the day, the mob (laughs) is what's kind of dictating everyone's actions. Yeah. I mean, kind of the way I felt was, I felt like it was, it was, I felt lumped into that mob while I was watching the the film. Mm. Right. You know, because there's movies about war, there's games about war, there's, you know, we make money off of war mm-hmm. in every way, whether, whether that's, you know, a literal war or that's entertainment. And as bad as I am at Call of Duty, you know, it's, it is fun to watch yeah. and it, someone who's really good. And, and I've thought about that even watching those games, like what, what why, you know, like why, one, you know, I, I probably just shouldn't, right, watch that or I shouldn't feel that way, but Two, why do we, why are we drawn to that? 
And I guess for for me, maybe it go it went back because I was I was feeling this while I was watching this film. So it maybe kind of goes back to the the idea of competition, right? I love competition, yeah. and it's the ultimate competition. If you lose, you die, right? So like it takes competition and it puts it in a whole nother stratosphere, and so that maybe that's a draw, right? Because I think you know we love sports and sports are like a I mean, it's a, it's a good kind of competition. Nobody dies, you know? So maybe that might be the draw, but I felt lumped in with the, the, the crowd in the Coliseum. And I really felt it after he fought the first time after Maximus fought the, one of the first times where he beat like six guys by himself and he throws the sword and he says, are you not entertained? This is not what you came here for. And I, I felt that I'm like watching this film yeah, I'm kind of entertained. This is what I came here for. Yeah. Wow. So it's very meta. I mean, that's the way it felt to me. I don't, you know, I don't ever pretend to know what a writer or director wants me to feel. I just, this is how I feel. And, you know, usually with someone like Ridley Scott, I I feel like he's like, all right, cool. You know, kind of like Nolan where they're like, they're not ever going to really tell you what they, (laughs) what they, you know, had behind the the curtain, but they're just going to let you feel the way you feel. And I love that. I love that. And same with music. If artists never tell you what a song is about, that's the way to go. Because then when you find out what it's about and it's not about how you feel, all of a sudden it's ruined, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. No, I had that same experience recently with, uh, an old uncovered tape about 2001 Space Odyssey. Oh. And Kubrick was gave this interview about, oh, here's what I really intended about the ending, blah, blah, blah. And I couldn't help but listen to it. I was like, and I'm not normally yeah, that guy. Yeah. But I was like, I got to know. I got to know what he, what he was trying to do and if I caught any piece of it. Yeah. Um, and I didn't. And it was a really interesting experience because I'm like, yeah, well, do I want to go back to... Do I wish I could go back to not knowing? To not knowing. You can't unknow. <laughs> you can't unknow it. You can't unsee things. You can't unknow it. Uh, yeah, but... Interesting. Wow. It was it was useful because that one I knew I was never, ever, ever going to get. And I was interested in an answer on that one. But um, stepping back a little further, like, how did you feel? I don't know the last time you, you've seen Gladiator. I mean, it's mm. going on 20 years yeah, old. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> so old. <laughs> so old. Do you feel like it held up? A hundred percent. It was so good. So good. I mean, you, some years you talk, you talk about, Oh, this movie won best picture. And you're like, what that movie, this movie could win best picture now. I mean, it's really, really good. All the acting in it is particularly, I mean, okay, let me just step back. Everyone is amazing in this film mm-hmm. from the kid to Proximo, who was my favorite in yeah. this movie. Uh, I mean, Oliver Reed absolutely <laughs> crushed it in every way. And he wasn't even like the main dude. He was just like <laughs> there for maybe, maybe half the film. Russell, Joaquin, like everybody just massively crushed, crushed it. The writing was fantastic. There was one moment that took me out of it. Ooh. And it's the worst moment. It's, and I just, I have to te- I have to say it out loud so that I can get it off my chest because it broke my heart because I was in it the entire time. And I mean, this movie is way more effective to me now, now that I have kids mm. and, you know, watching this guy go through the agony of what he went through. And then, and, and before I get to my moment, uh-huh. I should say, so I felt his agony throughout the entire movie, right? The whole time. And you know how sometimes in movies like this, like let's, well, I don't want to bring up another movie because we don't do that here on the pestle. (laughs) But there's a guy who's going to have to do something terrible. And you think, okay, if I were that guy, I would take this out that's in front of me right now. And they don't take the out. And you're like, come on, douchebag. Just take the out, you know, like, like I would probably take that out. Yeah. Yeah. I totally got why he didn't because he had shut down completely. He didn't care if he died. He's going to take everybody with him, you know, but if you're going to kill him, you're going to, you're going to be hurt too. You know, like that's the thing. It's like, I totally got it. 
a hundred percent. And I didn't get it the first time because I didn't have any kids. I was married, you know, but if you're, that's your world and your world is taken from you like that. The fact that he's even standing like is, is amazing. Totally. You know? Because and well, we're absolutely coming back because I, I want to hear what that is. Yeah, but yeah. from the very opening shot, yes. all he's wanted is to be on in his wheat field at home at peace. Yep. And he has denied that the whole way through until finally, you know, he has his his moment of release. Yeah. It's not the way he had originally, you know, planned or dreamt, but yeah. from the opening shot through the final shot, you're absolutely right. He 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 had checked out yeah. because of how much he was denied. And that's a good that's a good note to filmmakers or to to storytellers in general. Like give a hint early, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be the first shot, right. <laughs> but this was, but it was a very close up. It was very like, you know, we're okay. We're assuming this is Mac, Maximus, Russell Crowe, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's his hand. And so we feel whatever, we don't really know the context or whatever, but then it comes back to that and you're like, Oh, it kind of ties it. It makes the entire experience cohesive, mm-hmm. brings it back to the beginning. It's just, it's so awesome. Perfect. My moment. Yes. When, when he dies, I knew it. You knew it because you saw it too. I did. You saw God, like what the fuck? I can't man? believe it. I can't believe. It. Say it how all out, you, though. Say it all out. I don't know how they got away and said, "Dude, no, we got to get another take." Yeah, <laughs> oh, he's uh, she's. <laughs> God, I can't even fucking say it. Uh, Lucilla comes out and she kneels down by Maximus and says, "Go to them," and he dies, and she puts her hand over his face to rub his eyes and you see his eyes flinch. He's already dead. And it, it just killed me in that moment because you know, this is what he's wanted this whole time. He wanted, yes, he wanted his, his revenge and he got it and he wanted to be with them and he wanted to die and he got it. And I, and I'm there with you, man. And go to them. Yes, go to them. And that happens. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm watching a fucking movie. It's ah, weird, damn it. Because let's say that they thought they got it on the day. They had to really be moving, which there's no way in the world you're shooting that scene and not checking playback. Yeah. But let's just pretend something happened with the take they liked. It was ruined somehow. Fine. Say. Why? I don't understand why in the editing room you don't just say we're going to cut to after that moment. We yeah. don't find. We don't, don't get to need, see his eyes close. You don't need we to see, see the her hand. motion. Yeah, you don't need to. And I'll get into later how they get away without doing that stuff in other shots. Yeah. Like they all the time are just cutting out certain bits of action for the sake of compositions and all this other stuff. But there's no reason they actually needed to have that in there. That drove me crazy too. Oh, so it killed me, man. I was, it, I was like, Oh God. Yeah. He's, uh, he's going to bring it, that up. It really broke my heart. Yeah. I don't know. Cause don't it, yeah, it kills the whole idea of all of this. The reason why you spend millions of dollars and you create these amazing visual effects and these crazy wardrobes and big set pieces is this idea of the suspension of disbelief. Mm-hmm. You're doing everything in your power to make the viewer forget that they're at a movie theater and instead that they're witnessing something happening as it's happening. And whenever you lose a little bit of that focus to that extent, that critical yeah, you're you're shooting yourself in the foot. I, I I really I wonder if people have called him out on that and he's answered it. I you know like had an answer for it. I want to go back and see. I mean like, or make a director's cut where you cut that out. You know, or something. They're, they they have a director's cut. I on. know. I'm going to watch that actually. Now that uh, yeah, got to I mean, got to see something. That, and I I wonder, or I wonder if maybe he wanted to cut it out, but the studio was just like, no, we need that moment. Or I yeah, I don't know. Sure, I mean, you I'm do have those battles. To, I'm not uh, pretending to know. I just whatever it is is not a good enough excuse because it's a perfect film except for that. Yeah, to me, agreed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But going back to the uh, the whole mob thing, I thought it was just interesting too because you're right. Like as the mob wishes, everyone kind of bows to like Commodus, right? He's doing everything that they want him to do, but not Maximus. Maximus gets up there. He's not doing. He's doing as he wishes. Uh, so I feel like appeasing the mob is the way to lose their support, but surprising them, entertaining them, is how you win them. And you, he won their respect instead of, you know, their, their cheers, so to speak. 
Uh, and I just found that as a really interesting thing because Commodus is trying so hard to be liked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's trying everything. And you even have that moment after, after he defies him and he doesn't kill the big, big time gladiator. And you cut to Commodus whining like, now they love him more than they love yeah. me. <laughs> it's so perfect. It, it really is. He just is so focused on everything but being a good ruler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Maximus has kind of a little bit of a, he, he has a little bit of leeway because he is the underdog, mm. you know? He's the gladiator who's supposed to die, and he just doesn't, <laughs> he won't die. And everybody loves a good underdog. So it's really easy for, I, it's easier I think for the mob to like, like him, you know, because it's, it's like the underdog guy and it turns into, because Commodus is such a little bitch, it turns into the underdog guy against like the emperor. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, let me compare it to, it's like, Hmm. University of Louisiana Bayou district versus (laughs) Alabama. Right, and Alabama is losing in the fourth quarter by a touchdown. Who are you rooting for? Oh, Louisiana. I mean, yeah, that's my point, right? It's 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 like, oh my God, this is impossible to happen. I want to see it happen. Uh, so he has a little bit of an edge in, in that, and they play on that for sure. That's really such well a good point, it. yeah, because we we have these natural tendencies maybe as americans um yeah. i don't know about other cultures but certainly as americans that Definitely. we are rooting for the underdog and whenever you see someone betrayed and thrown to the wolves and he's just scrapping you know to stay alive you it doesn't matter how you feel about them you're rooting for them. Right. Cause he's a murderer. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a really good at killing people. Yeah. And like, that's been his job. Uh, <laughs> Maximus, I mean, and that's been his job and he's really good at it. But uh, you know, I guess they both are in a way. True. So, yeah. So it doesn't matter. But the crazy thing about Commodus is that he, like, he's not a real warrior, right? He, he yeah. choreographs his fight training. Yeah. So that he's at the right place at every time deflecting the blows. And, even whenever he finally steps into the ring, he hobbles his opponent. <laughs> so in every way he's and you know, Maximus is right. You know, I think you've been afraid your whole life. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's, the, that's the absolute truth yeah. in every way. He, he could not become what he wanted to be because, because he, I guess it was just never vulnerable. Yeah. He never gave into vulnerability. Yeah. That's, that's a good point because and we'll say this and I want to get to all your points, mm-hmm. you know, cinematography and stuff, but you know, you look at, look at someone like Maximus compared to someone like, like Commodus. Commodus cares for no one except himself. He doesn't, I mean, he, he loves his sister, right. which is weird, but, but not really. Yeah. Cause, cause he on, only loves her for himself. Right. Yep. Anyway. So he's, he's only about himself and, even though he acts like he's for the people, he never really is. He's only for himself. And nobody likes him, right? Everybody hates him, and uh, it, you as a viewer hate him. Whereas Maximus, he's, he's fearless because he is, he's vulnerable because he's given everything to try to get back to his wife and his son, right? So to him, he doesn't matter. Right yeah. to him, to him, the only thing that he wants is to get back to them, whether that's before they died and he's in the battlefield and he's thinking about being home before the battle or that's after and he just wants to die. Right. He just wants to get back to them. That's his only goal. He, ha- he doesn't care about what happens to himself. So he's selfless. So you have this completely selfish guy versus this completely selfless guy. And yeah, you're for the selfless guy because you like him, but at the same time, the selfless guy cannot lose, right? The yeah. selfish guy absolutely can lose. He has everything to lose because his, I mean, his reputation is on the line. He, the only thing he has is to defeat this guy who has nothing to lose. <laughs> so this other guy, Maximus, because he has nothing to lose, he, he can't lose. No, you're right, because even if he technically loses and dies, he still didn't lose anything because his life was of no regard to himself anyway. Right, exactly. 
And so, I love the, going back to the, uh, the opening, the war, before the war, he asks this great question when I think it's Qantas uh, makes this comment after, you know, all the Germanian people are clearly not going to sue for peace or whatever. Qantas says, a people should know when they've been conquered. And what is Maximus? He looks at him and says, would you? Would I? And I feel like he spends the whole movie trying to answer that question, like trying to figure out, am I conquered? Am I willing? Am I giving up now? No, even though he's clearly been conquered yeah, time and time again. Yeah. But at every step of the way, he never admits it. Yeah. He never relinquishes, even if only to spite, you know, the people that are trying to bring him down. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that might be the only reason that he stays alive is spite. Uh, 100%. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite moments is when he takes his helmet off and he's talking to Commodus. He's telling who he is. Oh yeah. man, just shivers. Yeah. Hey, let's get to your points. Yeah, let's, get so your rundown. let's discuss some of the cinematography. Ridley Scott has some very distinct things that he does, certainly in this film, but across most of his films, I would have to keep doing more studying of his films to really say that these are all in there. But I think a lot of these are in there. I love the use of zooms. Like you don't see a lot of zooms in modern day movies anymore. Oh right, yeah. these are more throwback techniques of you know the seventies and sixties, um, maybe the eighties, but they use a lot of zooms in this, and I haven't really respected the zoom too much myself, in all honesty, until watching this film. So we'll get into that in a second. But the cool things about zooms are, for one, it's easy to pull focus. Uh, <laughs> the the cool thing about zooms is it's easy to pull focus and you get to recompose your image all without having to worry about screwing up a shot. It's easier. It's faster than dollying in and out because if you're moving the camera on a dolly or you're sliding in towards your subject, you're changing the focal distance from the the camera to the subject. And so you're constantly pulling focus throughout that camera move. Whereas if you're just zooming, most lenses, certainly all the modern day lenses will maintain focus through that whole zoom range because the distance of the camera is not actually moving. It's just you're, you're zooming in through your, your focal length. And so it's the simplest thing in the world. The other thing that I really began to enjoy throughout the film was that it's also more focused than dolly shots. Because there's now dolly shots are more cinematic in the sense that you're getting all this parallax, which is all the, you can tell the camera's moving because everything in the, around your subject is kind of moving in relation as you're moving in, right? You're seeing the ground move before you. You're seeing objects kind of clear the way as like, if you were to imagine there's a a long desk and you have uh, a row of books on either side and you have a glass at the end. Well, as you move the camera through that, the books are passing through the camera and you're getting closer and you're seeing the desk move close underneath the, uh, the camera. You have all that parallax that's happening. You don't have that with the zoom, but what you do have with the zoom is you're more focused on the subject because there's less distraction that's happening within the frame. And so there is some actual benefit to storytelling using a zoom instead of like a dolly move. And that's just interesting. Now a dolly move might add more importance in some ways because it's more grander in its movement, but for subtlety, a zoom I think will do really nicely and maybe better than uh, a dolly and at the same time it'll also be faster to accomplish you don't have to worry about hitting your focus marks and working out the move it's just a matter of okay now zoom in at this part and we're good yeah <laughs> next take awesome <laughs> that's pretty cool yeah i love that i was also really impressed with the visual effects like they were great it's 18 years later and they haven't gotten any better yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've gotten worse. In some yes, case. exactly. It's worse. I would say like <laughs> the effects, the visual effects on this are an eight out of ten. For one, a lot of all the blood stuff seems to be done in camera, and I'm I actually like well done blood visual effects because you don't know that they're happening. But most films, especially the the campy action films, they just kind of throw, you know, CG blood all over the place. They don't do that here. They do a lot of practical in-camera effects uh, that are someone's being slashed or chest is ripping open. I don't know how they're doing that. If it's just a matter of, 
quick cutting, adding a sound effect, and you just think that is happening in camera, mm-hmm. or if they're actually you know doing some kind of old school, we're pulling makeup off of them as the sword is swinging across, and it, and we're doing that you know real time, and then maybe patching it up in post. Or actually killing people. Or actually killing people. I, I mean, think that's yeah. the simplest way. I mean, yeah. That's why they're called extras. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're welcome. That was the best. <laughs> oh, I don't even know. That was so good. <laughs> you win. You win that round. <laughs> and so the the best thing, though, is whenever they built the Coliseum, that's all digital. Obviously, they didn't go reconstruct the Coliseum. But buildings are easier to do as far as visual effects because you have these hard textures that you can model, that you can light. They're a little easier to light and blend. You can create these this atmospheric uh, fog and mist and uh, elements that help solidify it within the, the environment. But they also do a, a smart job of largely not doing a ton of camera movement. If you lock off a shot, it's way easier to suddenly you know, perfectly build out your visual effects. And they relied on that a lot. Not that they didn't have any of these camera movements. You get within the ring whenever he walks out and they're swirling that camera around and that's some excellent, you know, visual effects work for sure. But if you look at the establishing shots and some of those early morning shots, lock it off. Yeah. Just let it be. It'll be much easier to sell, especially for as long as those shots last. You don't want to, you know, hurt your visual effects team by doing too much movement. Another thing cinematography-wise that Ridley Scott does a ton of this is he likes to layer his shots. You add so much depth in a very physical way, not so much as in a we're having a shallow depth of field, so we have blurry things in front and blurry things in back, but he literally just gives you crossing action in front, crossing action in back, and now you have a foreground, you have a background that's kind of sandwiching your subject, and that just adds so much visual interest. Now, the way... He does it, of course, is he has 500 extras on set. <laughs> yeah, that helps. That helps a lot. Agreed. <laughs> but a, another thing that he does, he doesn't just settle for that, though. He constantly, and this is something he does a lot throughout a lot of his films, is he hazes. Uh, he adds a lot of atmospheric smoke and mist and just haze that, you know, whenever you have sunbeams coming through the window, well, you can't see the light unless it's reflecting off of something. Right. That's just the way our vision works. We only see the light reflected off of objects. Um, and so if you have a black thing, it's a little bit harder to see because it just does not transmit as much light. And so if you want to see sunbeams, you can't just say, hey, where are the sunbeams? There's, I know there's light on the other side of that window. What you have to do is pump in smoke, like this haze, let it settle. And now the light is reflecting off all that haze. Yeah. And now you have these sunbeams. And he's doing all that kind of stuff all the time. But when you get into these much, much bigger, wider outdoor shots, you can't, it's, that's really hard to do unless you have some serious budget because you're talking about, you know, several hundred yards in the background uh, that you're trying to create all this mist for. But he does it. And what it does is it does a number of things. For one, it lowers the contrast of the background, which helps you know, separate the foreground from the background. So instead of, you know, doing a lot of three point lighting kind of techniques, all you need to do is make the background less bright than the foreground. And you add that mist. And now you still have all this visual interest, but now because you don't have all this haze and, and mist in the foreground, you've added an extra layer of depth and contrast so that you're focused on what's happening in front of you, but you also have a really great sense of the scene, but it's not distracting you from the action that you're supposed to be watching. And does it like, does it also make it almost look more desert like, like how Rome would have looked back then or something? I don't know. True. No, that's a good point. Like, especially whenever you get out into those streets. Yeah. Because you do expect a little bit more smoke. There's like these dust flying. Yeah, everywhere. right. Yeah. The carts are running down the street. What yeah. have you? Yeah, for sure. But he'll do this a lot in whether it's sci-fi or, you know, it's this period piece or it's something like a modern day, a good year where it's just about grapes in the middle of, you know, Italy or wherever. Yeah. Like he'll do these things just because it's beautiful. That low contrast look is just naturally it's soft. There's 
atmosphere to it and it also serves as a point of interest without being distracting it's all these little beauty things that he does and i frankly love it so much because you're aware of the surroundings without you know being distracted by them but to that end he also really crops down his compositions he doesn't do a ton especially in this film maybe he does in other films but in this film especially we don't always see the action like it's kind of inferred by body language the example that just immediately came to mind was uh, Maximus raising his helmet to the crowd. We never see his helmet in the air. We see it pass through the frame and we're kind of cropped in from like his chest to the top of his head and his arm comes out of frame and we never cut to a wide shot of him holding up his helmet. Instead, we get the crowd reaction Then we cup even tighter to Maximus and we're only aware because of the way his shoulder is angled. We see his uh, armor is kind of raised and we still kind of feel the energy of the crowd and that he's still egging them on and we never really see it. And what's kind of cool about that is we're filling up the frame by cropping out certain things. You're You're filling up the frame to show all the action in order to show all the action. You, you have to suddenly create all this empty space. And for him, that's just not as visually pleasing as having a, you know, a, a packed out frame. He would much rather fill the frame with something and not let you see everything mm-hmm. than the inverse of letting you see everything. And suddenly maybe it looks less exciting because you. Yeah, it's, it's like a very it's a very large. I mean, you're talking about the Coliseum. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Now you suddenly have all this empty space and right. you're having to work that much harder to fill that up. And at the same time, I mean, he's also benefiting from creating these incredible action sequences, which are still largely cut through these uh, hard to understand close-ups, but you're hearing the, the, visual, the sound effects with you still have a good idea of the geography of the scene and what's happening. Even if you can't pinpoint, oh yeah, he just got cut in the leg, uh, you understand it through perfectly composed images and rapid, rapid cutting with the sound effects. Like it's really, really intelligent on his part and it still maintains, but he's built up this huge visual uh, effect or this great grand world. You're never questioning the scale. So not seeing Mm. everything, you know, for great parts of time doesn't bother you. Yeah. Cause he's already sold you on that. Right. The other thing he's doing, going back to the action, he does two things with his camera settings. Actually, he's doing these lower frame rates Whenever you see kind of these slow-mo but not slow-mo scenes, right? Um, it's just kind of choppy, but it's not slow motion. He never, I don't think he ever uses slow motion. But if you have, we're, we're shooting this at 24 frames per second. It's kind of your, your standard operating procedure when it comes to films. And the reason, just a quick history lesson, way back in the day, the frame rate was an inconsistent thing because you had a guy who was kind of hand-cranking it. And you had guys that would get really, really good at getting a pretty consistent, you know, frame rate. And maybe they would do like 16 frames a second. And then whenever you play it back, you know, everything looks fast because there just aren't that many frames, you know, to begin with. Um, And so you have the guy who's recording the film and the guy who's projecting it later on. They're not going to be the same guy (laughs) (laughs) because they're distributing this. And so it's always going to be inconsistent. And that's what kind of gives us that Charlie Chaplin feel of, you know, oh, it's kind of funny and it's fast and he's dancing around. Well, it's just because film was very expensive (laughs) and you got by with what you could. At a certain point, they were able to start syncing sound and they had these machines that would, you know, the motor that would be able to keep a consistent frame rate. And the cost of film came down a little bit. And so they were like, what's the least amount of film that we can run through this camera with that also looks kind of lifelike that looks the way we see things. And that became the common ground of what 24 frames per second. We're doing a good job of capturing audio and syncing audio. And we're also having an ability to, it looks lifelike, but it's not 48 frames a second. That really looks lifelike. Cause that's twice the cost. <laughs> yeah. And so they chose, you know, 24 frames per second as your standard. Every second has 24 frames or pictures, if you will. And so some of these action sequences in gladiator, they under crank it. So instead of 24 frames, 
to do normal slow motion, you might shoot at like 48 frames per second. And then in post, whenever you, you play it back, you actually, you slow it down. You lengthen those frames so that now 48 frames stretched over 24, you have twice the amount of time because that's divisible, right? Yeah. And so now everything plays back slower. Well, if you do the opposite, if you do 16 frames per second and you play that back at 24 frames, well, now suddenly everything looks choppier and it looks, it's not slower, but it feels slower. And I don't know that they were using 16 frames per second. I have no idea what they're using, but whether it's 12, 16 or 18, maybe 20, it creates this cinematic sense of action that feels slower to the eye, even though you're still kind of keeping real time. Um, it feels dated to us. Sometimes you still see this technique used. Not too often. People usually just settle for slow motion. <laughs> yeah. But here they still use it and it still works because you're not, you're not having to do quite as much. If you do slow motion, suddenly you're like, well, how in the span of, you know, four seconds, how can we tell enough story and make everything work fast enough so that when we slow it down, we understand the geography of what's happening. It just becomes a little bit more confusing and you have to do a lot more to communicate to the audience what's happening. Do they also do that shutter speed thing? They do. Okay. Like that's very a Ridley Scott thing and Spielberg thing. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So yeah. normally if you're doing, you know, going back to 24 frames a second as a standard, well, the shutter speed or the shutter angle controls how much motion blur there is in your frame. And so if you imagine running your hand back and forth over your face, like you can see the motion blur of your hand. You don't necessarily see your hand at that point, but you kind of see the traces that your hand leaves. Well, that's, that's motion blur. And in film, by keeping this two to one ratio, uh, you kind of keep a consistent motion blur happening. Now, if you decide that you want something to look much more action-y, well, then you want less motion blur. And in order to do that, you maybe raise the shutter speed, which in digital, that's, that's why you do it with digital cameras. They have a, a shutter, an electronic shutter that's kind of scanning how, many, how, how quickly do we scan this sensor. Back in the day or in film cameras and the higher end cameras, they use a shutter angle because there's, there's basically this little rod in there that you can restrict how much of that rod is, is open. It's a, if you think about it as a cylinder, a circle, well, now if you want a two to one ratio, well, what's half of a circle? What's half of 360 degrees? That's 180 degrees. And so now you've kind of created this two to one ratio and you're keeping consistent motion blur. Well, Ridley Scott said, man, I want the action to really look action-y. So I'm going to let less of the frame be exposed to light and thereby make a sharper image because the longer something stays in a frame, the more of it you're going to see and the more traces it's going to leave. Like if you imagine, I don't know, your hand going back in front of your face again, well, then the hand looks suddenly sharper and, I don't know, uh, more jittery in a sense. But if you get into those those fight sequences, especially in the arena, right? Everything, the dirt is flying, the sword is swinging, mm -hmm. uh, the dirt's being kicked up in his face, and it looks very sharp and action-y. And that's all they're doing is he's combining kind of this newer technique of a low shutter angle because now less of the, less of the shutter is open. Yeah. And it's creating this much more sharper motion blur that looks just more, a lot more action-y. And so yeah. it's just interesting because I don't see... I don't know any other film off the top of my head anyway that incorporates both that kind of weird shutter, uh, the, the low shutter angle combined with every once in a while cutting and using this kind of lower shut, uh, frame rate. It's an yeah. odd combination that yeah. I didn't expect coming into this. Most, most films will just pick one. Yeah. 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 We're going to do this thing and then, mm -hmm. yeah, that'll be our thing. <laughs> uh, but there's an interesting emotional thing that happens with that low frame rate that I think, you know, benefits and you're trying to connect emotionally to the character and like, oh, well, maybe we can just do this other thing instead. Two other things with cinematography and then I'll switch really quickly to the clothing stuff. Yeah. But Marcus's death was really interesting to me because before he enters the room, you have Commodus who's looking at the bust of the statue, right? The granite bust of Marcus Aurelius, his father. And 
then Marcus enters the scene and he turns his back to the bust. And now he's discussing his future or lack of future with his father. And you have that bust behind him the entire scene. And it's really interesting. I can't quite put my finger on it, but I want to say that he feels haunted and judged by his father as his father's overlooking him in both directions. But it's also what he wanted to be. Like he's finding his future, the thing that he wanted, is no longer in front of him. He wanted to be the ruler with this amazing title and with this amazing legacy. And now his father's taking that from him. Mm -hmm. And that's just a really beautiful symbolic visual element that you have going throughout that entire scene, even whenever he's being killed. Um, You still kind of see his father in the back. And why I think that's cool, I'll go a little bit further into when we get into the clothing. But I just thought that was a really simple, easy visual element to that scene. But I also really love the visual element of the snake charmers. When you get later into the film, you have this scene right before, I think it's right before you have his buddy acting like he's being choked by poison. You know, he samples his food. Yeah, right. Right before that, though, you see the snake charmers bang on the drum or whatever and then unleash the snake like they dizzy it up or whatever they're doing i have no idea but they're all trying to gain the attention it looks like they're betting or maybe they're just amusing themselves i have no idea but it looks like they're antagonizing the snake and i i felt like it's symbolizing something my gut reaction is that it's symbolic of the crowd like everyone is trying to charm the crowd get the crowd on their side and hypnotize them but the crowd and the snake is temperamental and it's deadly. If you do it wrong, it's your life that's at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, and that plays out because we cut from that to Maximus. And so on the other hand, you could also say the snake is Maximus, but I don't think anybody is necessarily trying to charm Maximus. Yeah, no. He's too much He's of a snake. Charmable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a different kind of snake, you could also say. So there's a lot of symbolism that you could work into the snake. But I just thought that was an interesting, uh, it wasn't a throwaway. It wasn't just, hey, here's something cool we can do. I feel like it's more emblematic of something in the film. Yeah. Now, diving into the clothing, telling the story by clothing, I took just gobs and gobs of notes of all the clothing. And I was like, yeah. you know what? My, my five-minute take is not going to be as good as the 20-second take that comes basically. And I'm not going to like play you know, a clip, but the summary I got this from Alex Buono, who, and I might be butchering his name because that's what we do here, <laughs> but, but it's the, the cinematographer from Saturday Night Live, and he did a workshop on cinematography, and part of it was uh, visual storytelling in a more symbolic way, and he touches okay. on Gladiator, and he's like, man, they do such an excellent job of communicating story through clothing, And going back to Marcus and the death scene, Commodus throughout the film is going, is trying to ascend into godhood. And you see it selected through his clothing. And at the very end of the film, he's even uh, in like this pure white alabaster wardrobe that looks like the very statue that he was trying to, you know, Become yeah, right. his goal whenever he stole the emperor, uh, the emperor seat, the Caesar ship, or whatever it's called. Now he's at the very last sequence. He both looks like death, and he looks like he's kind of uh, deified himself by becoming his statue, his his ultimate goal. But more interesting than him is his sister, or Lucilla. She at the beginning and at the very very end. She has a very free-flowing wardrobe. It's all, it moves, it's elegant. She's very ornate and beautiful. And throughout the film, the more Commodus, you know, is under, has her under his grasp, you see her wardrobe begin to strangle her as well. 
like she has these wraps around her and I'll see if I can pull some frames and putting into the show notes, but it's a really interesting visual, you know, telling of what she's dealing with in her personal life Mm -hmm. with her brother. Uh, Suddenly she's no longer free and flowing um, and moving about. She is completely restricted by her wardrobe, just like she is by her brother. And then right after he's dead, she rushes down and suddenly um, she's flowing and she's free again. It's a really just simple. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. So, you know, hat tip to Alex Biono for for that little tidbit. I highly recommend if you can take one of his workshops, do so. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all I got. Wow. (laughs) Random, haphazard, but there it is. No, I love it. That's great. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff that I don't notice. Yeah. You know, I mean, you notice it, but it's like subcontext. Totally. But it's what's funny to me is for most of my filmmaking career, I've been much more on this side of cinematography of I like cropping. I like camera movement. And instead of showing you everything, I kind of leave some things up to cuts. Like I might grab a shot of the helmet. I might grab a shot and insert it here and there. It feels much more cinematic to me. And I've gotten more into wider shots. Like I like trying to compose these bigger wide, wide angle lenses. And I'm trying to figure out like, Oh, how can I fill the frame and tell the story in these wider elements? And then I come back to gladiator and I'm like, Oh man, I miss doing it this way. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's all just tools in the tool belt. Yeah, man. That's awesome. (laughs) And we already talked about a little bit of the visual effects, but did you have anything specifically that like jumped out at you? You're like, wow, this is. Yeah. I think seeing that, Definitely like the Coliseum is, you know, amazing. Yeah. yeah. But seeing also the the balcony shot in the morning after after one of the fights that I want to say it's after he's gained the upper hand. He's caught Maximus and what have you. Well, you're just out there on a balcony in the sunrise and you just overlook the entire place. And it's just gorgeous. Like I it's an eight out of ten. Not a 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. but I'm there. I'm like, God, I want to live there. I want to yeah. go visit that place. Yeah. And a lot of movies, like you indicated earlier, like a lot of movies still can't quite get to that lifelike area. There are five out of 10. <laughs> like, really? I mean, yeah. We've come so much further and yet not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about yeah. you? Were there any like visual effect moments where you just blew your hair back? No, not in, I mean, the whole, the whole thing pretty much was, was on par to, to itself. I mean, it was really, really good. Nothing jumps out at me and says, yeah, this, remember this moment. And I think that that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it, go, it goes to show like through, from beginning to end, it was all the same caliber, which was really top notch, really, really good. So no, nothing really jumped out. And I think that's. He's a master of his craft. Yeah, man. What One of those stories that has always stuck with me and that I never want to em- emulate is that apparently they didn't have a finalized script as they were going into production. Like they had a large... For this whole movie? Yeah. Like they had a good idea and to some degree they were making it up on as they were going. Like I don't think they even had his name finalized before they started rolling. So I was like... Originally, it was supposed to be Narcissus was his name. And then... Well, that... What? Yeah. <laughs> that didn't sound that right. That doesn't go at all. At all. Mm-hmm. And so... It's like the opposite. <laughs> wow. And so I don't know to what extent that that's true, but I'm like, wow. To d- I mean, it sounds fun. It's, yeah, it sounds But when you're talking about like a $100 million movie, right. I mean, I, I wouldn't want... I wouldn't want that on my shoulders. No, but that also goes to like, if you have a master craftsman, he can shoot anything you, you know, you give him. It's just a matter of working out a good story. And that, I think that still stands. Ridley Scott still makes some stinker movies, um, but they all look visually incredible. Um, It's just a matter of spend a little more time, you know, honing the story. Yeah. (laughs) So what, what would you give Gladiator then? Ooh, yeah, I think this is a ten out of ten for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I got to do nine out of ten. Nice. I can't give it a ten because yeah. that moment. Oh, fair. You know what? I just <laughs> that's can't. 
big moment. Yeah, we we'll give it. The ball. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If yeah. it was any any other moment at any <laughs> the the whole other two and a half hours of the film, uh, you know, I could overlook it. But it's so important. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know how they missed that, or if they did, or why they kept it in. I don't know. Yeah, I was just impressed. I mean, they had they clearly had this really strong story of vindication and vindictiveness and yeah you nailed it and there's these i guess more central themes that i just really connect to and i'm debating if i'm going to lower it a notch mm-hmm. I but mean, i'm good yeah okay. i think i'm good with right. staying with the 10 but yeah i will grimace every time i watch it now yeah. <laughs> well you should grimace at the fact you gave it a 10 you're like ah oh, i gave it a 10 uh, you should look up that scene watch it and then tell me yeah yeah 10 no it's okay it's uh, good what do you got recommendation for the week uh well i'm going to stick with the whole russell crowe theme and go with the film that he made actually the i think the following year a beautiful mind nice yeah that did win 2001 it was amazing i mean it just it, he had a really good f- few couple of years yeah right there he was killing it yeah he was killing it and it's a great great film i mean from what i remember it was a great film i haven't seen it in a very long time which makes me want to go back and watch it again true yeah i bet it would hold up well i too am going to stick on the russell crowe oh tip and i'm going with master and commander the far side of the world it's another period piece not quite sword and sandal, but it's an understated, like epic movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really well worth watching. I don't think enough people saw it, and so even okay. though it's like a big budget film, it's probably a little under the radar. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to go check it out then. <laughs> so Sweet. tune in next week. Yeah. What are we doing next week? Mission Impossible. Oh yes. Fallout. Okay. All right. We're doing it. We're doing this, aren't we? Here. <laughs> we really are. Okay don't forget to subscribe and review us on itunes leave us a note if there's a film you'd like to uh, for us to cover and i want to give a shout out to sj the machine and israel for the reviews on itunes they both left really great ones but i want to read uh, israel's he said i'm a great cine fan with little technical background and you guys took a movie uh the departed that i slayed despite the fun acting for the plot hole of Stuff, stuff, stuff. Um, certainly inspiring for even more reviewing of that movie in your broadcast. New fan, lots of exclamation parts, points. Really appreciate you not only dropping that review, but also sending us a very thoughtful email. Yeah. If I can figure out a way to reply to you, I certainly will. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot to reply to. In there that. is. Well, it's more of, I don't think I have a reply email for that email address. It'll oh. come from like my personal weird one. I have a I have everything. Which one? You've got like 12 email addresses. <laughs> I, do. I do, but I have kind of a junk one that I send everything to because I want to say this might be our first actual email. And I was like, oh my God, Todd. <laughs> 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 look, come yeah. look. <laughs> come to the window. <laughs> but it was an awesome, awesome email. I really, really appreciate was. you sending that. It was a lot of fun to read. <laughs> and so yeah. if anybody wants to drop a note on this episode, you can go to thepestlepodcast.com slash gladiator. Awesome. And we'll leave you with a quote of the day from Marcus Aurelius. Uh, The best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. It's so easy to want to stoop to the people who hurt you and do likewise. Yep. But, you know, and Marcus Aurelius, you know, had all these amazing writings and it was kind of hard to pick the one I wanted to use, but obviously this reflects strongest on this film to me anyway, because you have Russell Crowe who was stripped of everything and he was really only bent on fulfilling Marcus Aurelius's wishes. I mean, he wanted his vengeance, no doubt. He says as much, but he didn't hurt everyone who contributed. He went after the one guy yeah, and he still fulfilled like his duties. He sacrificed a lot and, yeah, at the end of the day, that's kind of what I want to be that way. I want to make sure that just because someone, you know, hurts me, I'm not vindictive and I'm not vindictive by nature, but I love this idea for sure. Can I be honest? Yeah. It depends on the injury. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. I mean, I would like to be the one to say, you know, turn the other cheek. And if somebody like hits me, maybe because eh, it's not that big of a deal. 
but in this movie, well earned. I mean, it's not the best revenge to be unlike him who performed <laughs> the injury in this movie, or maybe it is. And that speaks to the whole thing we talked about in the very beginning where I'm the mob and that's what I want to see is the mm. revenge, you know, like I, wow, man, that's full circle. Just, I don't that's know. really deep. That's a really interesting thought. Maybe, but I will say to be like Commodus at this point would also mean to be a dictator and to be more controlling. Yeah. Marcus, you know, he didn't commit like kill Qantas and then yeah, <laughs> take yeah Senate back. exactly yeah yeah no he definitely wasn't like that so yeah, I yeah it's it's a definitely a beautiful quote that belongs in the Bible for sure yeah you know what I mean Boom. you know I'm, I can I can name somebody else who probably said something like that yeah <laughs> anyway yes so thank you guys again for joining us so I had a I had a great time man this is so good yeah it was fantastic uh, again make sure to join us next week Mission Impossible Fallout go watch it. And, uh, and then join us and please review us and leave us a note, drop us a line, all those things. Tell us what you want to hear and we'll get back to you. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Movies.